Well, today we look at the ascension of Jesus, an event that Luke, the the writer of the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts, thought was important enough to recount twice as he included it at the the end of his Gospel and then again at the beginning of the reading that we're looking at today from Acts chapter 1. And while Acts as a book does not give us the full history of the church during the period of the disciples' ministry. It doesn't tell us about all the different churches that were popped up, especially that strong one in Egypt. It's not mentioned at all. It does span about 30 years and takes us up to about AD 60 or 61. So we really are seeing the beginning of the church. And we see this messy, full of love, full of mistakes, but definitely full of the Spirit as we go on. Because what Luke captures in Acts is that what Jesus began, his ministry, his presence, his, his power, the, the call to repentance and the forgiveness of sins that is found in Jesus alone, that gospel continued. In fact, there's a, a real sense in which the book of Acts continues to be written today, not in an authoritative scriptural sense that we can read, but in the sense that God's Spirit still is alive and amongst His church and being written in our very lives even to this very day. The unseen but continuance working of Jesus is still going. It's that same Spirit that was there that lives and works in us, I think, is powerful. Powerful and exciting. So let's pull out our Bibles. On this Ascension Day, we're going to take a look at at Acts chapter 1. And again, this is, um, if you can imagine it, back in the day, they didn't have phones. They, uh, they wrote things on scrolls, and so a scroll would be really long. One scroll was the Gospel of Luke. The next scroll was the Book of Acts. And so this is where we're picking up, Acts 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, who like, who's this guy? Um, Theophilus might have been a Christian wanting in structure. Most people believe he was a Roman official being briefed by Luke about the history of the Christian movement. Some even say that he's just a, a symbol because Theophilus means God lover, so he could be anyone. Nevertheless, I'm digressing. In my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, He presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. That's like appearing to the 500 in 1 Corinthians. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. This is verse 4. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Luke narrates the ascension, 
but never stops to explain its theological significance. But there are at least three huge pieces that he talks about here that I think are worth our attention. The first is that the ascension is the final proof that Jesus is Lord. This point becomes more and more explicit as the book of Acts continues and as the, 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 the Apostle Paul starts writing in his letters. Jesus' ascension is the reason that he can now do what he promised to send down his Holy Spirit. And in Acts 5, the disciples, even as they're getting beaten and arrested and put into prison, point to his ascension as to why Jesus is the one who starts repentance in our heart and offers us the forgiveness of sins. He ascends into a cloud because he didn't just disappear like he had been doing throughout the rest of his resurrection, but this time the cloud in our text is not just some heavenly elevator that he goes up, it's the sign of God's presence, just like it was in the book of Exodus or like it was at Jesus' transfiguration. The cloud shows us that Jesus went to the Father to be with the Father in love and in power. That cloud is Jesus' welcome into the Father's presence and the announcement that the victory is won. Jesus isn't fleeing anything. He's going up into heaven because he has conquered, beaten sin. He's beaten death and the power of the devil, which allows us to not have to live in fear or doesn't mean that death has the final say over our lives or that we are remaining empowered by sin. Rather, we have been freed. Because just like when we confessed, Christ has ascended to be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is above all rule and authority and all dominion in heaven and in earth has been placed under his feet. He is the head of everything in control. Which means that even though we can't see it, and even though sometimes we struggle to believe it, he is in control, directing and guiding his people, the church. And remains Lord for us and for all who follow. When we do the Apostles' Creed and we confess that Jesus has risen and ascended, we are claiming and confessing that God has exalted Jesus, the one who calls us and welcomes us sinners by name, the one who for us suffered and died in shame on the cross and was rejected by the world. We say He is our Lord and our Messiah. He is the promise of God that nothing can stop. And just because he has ascended does not mean that we're going back to the way it was before. No, everything now has changed because Jesus is enthroned, which leads us to the second takeaway of our text, that if Jesus goes up, he hasn't left us down here as orphans. He didn't ascend into heaven and say, okay, guys, now it's your turn. You're on your own. I did the hard work. Now you got just the, the little following part. The training wheels are off. Let's go. I'm watching you, but I'm not going to help you. You're on your own. Not at all, right? He goes up because the Spirit goes down. The Father sends the spirits to be poured out on us. And I love that image. Not given just a drop, not given just a little bit, but poured out, washing over us, giving the Spirit without limit. And Jesus tells his disciples, wait for that. Wait for that. Because it's coming. And what's really cool is if you think about the way that Luke is as a writer. In Luke chapter 1, Gabriel's words to Mary come, and then she has to wait for the baby to be born. And then she has to wait for the baby to grow, to become the man. 
And we see the same thing happening here at the start of Acts. The promise is that the Spirit is going to come, and then when it does, the church is going to grow and become the witness that God calls it to be. From where they are in Jerusalem, to the cities outside, to the very ends of the earth. But they have to wait. And waiting is hard. Waiting on the Lord's promises is difficult. Especially when there's misunderstanding, especially when there's expectations. The disciples are told, wait, the power is going to come. And then they say, now, are you going to restore Israel now? Is this the part where you're going to do now everything we've ever wanted? Is it happening right now? And I can relate to that. Wanting it now. Because it's hard to wait. It's hard to be patient when you're dealing with so much in your life. Why do things have to take time, especially when we have seen Jesus do these miracles and can do them in an instant? Why does he make us wait? Why do we have to wait? Wouldn't it be great if we could just have instant financial strength in life? Wouldn't it be great if we could just have instant physical power and strength, like just one crunch, boom, six-pack? It would be great if we could suddenly become an expert in everything in life right away when we wanted to. It would be great if we could just get everything that we wanted all at once. Instant maturity in faith, in life, in everything that we want without any waiting. But if it really was like that and we didn't have to wait, would we ever really slow down? Would we ever pause and look around? Would we ever notice what God is doing in the waiting? If we could have it all at once, would we be prepared to receive the things we want or need all at once? And if we didn't have to wait, if we didn't have to struggle would there ever be that growth or that choice to trust in God rather than in the immediacy of things? Because the things of God, the life he gives, the promises he has made to us in our baptism, they require waiting and trusting as well. And I thought for a long time, is that good? And I think sometimes, yeah, it is. It was good for the disciples because to restore Israel to its former greatness was a hope that is too small. They wanted how it was before again. And God said, that's not big enough. What God had in mind was not just bringing the kingdom of Israel back to the good old days, but bringing Israel to its yet unrealized goal of being light to the entire world, of not one kingdom and one city that is in a physical place, but a kingdom that's here and here, one of Jesus that reaches all nations and all lifestyles, where the word of the Lord is, where Jesus is now, the kingdom is there. And without sounding like some prosperity preacher who knows that, what if in your waiting, God is saying, what you think you want 
and what you need isn't right and in fact is just too small. Because while you are waiting, I am going to do something that is far greater, far more than you could ever ask or imagine. And how does this happen? Because he has ascended and speaks to the Father on our behalf. And he has sent the Spirit down to fill us. Not a spirit of comfort and warm, happy thoughts or some little thing that has no influence over our lives, but something that brings change, something that brings wisdom, something that reveals to us who Jesus is and gives us an understanding of waiting and struggling, opens and enlightens our heart and fills it in the waiting and the struggling with hope and richness because of who Jesus is and what he has done a spirit that brings us incomparable strength and power for those who believe. Not strength to conquer a world by force, but, to, but strength to be able to wage against the war of your mind and against the sin that holds you back. The spirit is described in Ephesians as the working of God's mighty strength, not only that of raising Christ Jesus from the dead, but giving you new life to resist and turn from all that is wrong and to walk in the light in the newness of life which is the third and final takeaway of the piece the disciples are staring up in wonder and expectation and then the guys are like dude what are you doing you shouldn't be looking up it's time to look out. Jesus ascends, the Spirit comes down, and we go out. We go out now to proclaim, to teach, to love, and to serve in Jesus' name. We don't go out to pursue our own security now, our own financial strength, our own power. We go out invited into a partnership with Jesus, into the work, the hope, the richness, the power that He had. If salvation comes only from Him, He has given us the task, the call, the joy to be the ones who speak it. We proclaim Christ's death, His resurrection, and preach repentance and forgiveness of sins. Each one of us, this good news, the sweetest, most precious, most powerful gift in all the world, the only thing that can take a person from dead and condemned to hell, to life everlasting, and to know true peace. He has taken jars of clay and put a richness and a power inside of them to share. That is the power that you have been invited into, to speak and bring life to people, words of eternal life. But like Romans says, how can people have this if they've never heard of it? Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and we go out because we are called to speak the words of the gospel of His death and resurrection and the forgiveness that now exists for each one of us. We are sent out to live in faith, the love of Jesus. And we know that faith and works don't belong in the same arena when it comes to salvation. We're saved by grace. We know that. But works of love are, not be, are never separated from the faith that is in us. 
While we remain down here, we love and we speak of what we have. It's not about us and our morality and holy living. It's about being filled with the love of Christ Jesus and to share that, to let it spill out out of our lives. If we live in a time where our actions are speaking louder than our words, man, what a powerful opportunity to have the words of truth and then to live them in truth. We are the body of Christ, and He is the head, guiding us, filling us, so that we can share, so that we can love, so that we can speak. I am really excited about next week. Next week, each one of us has an opportunity to not just be passive in this role of faith in following Jesus, but to recognize that God has given each one of us gifts, has blessed each one of us with something to give so that he may be known in people's lives who do not know him. And what an opportunity to be able to walk next week, to visit a table, and to begin. I'm excited. And I pray that God blesses you on this day, this Ascension Day, that you would know that He has never left you, but that He has filled you with His Holy Spirit so that you can do great and wonderful things in His name for His glory because you're a part of this, a part of this following Jesus and loving Him.